Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode five of Total Party Podcast. Unfortunately, this week we are both lightless and jackless, as Mr. Light is away studying for his wizard exams, and Jack has unfortunately been eaten by a beholder. I do, however, have with me our regular and DM, Sam Worldbuilder Taylor. Hello. And today we're going to be having an interview about the world that he's built himself from scratch. So let's jump right on in. Tell us a bit about your world. So uh, my world, completely homebrew uh, from the ground up. Well, the setting itself is called Serendar and Boam because it is both the world of Serendar and its habitable moon, Boam. Serendar, the planet below, is basically completely fine. Everything is good there. There was a great big war to systematically cleanse all of the beasts and evils that were on the surface of the world at the time when, basically, God's son came down and led multiple armies to just wipe out all the nasty things. Uh, So now it's completely fine, completely peaceful, and just ruled by a council of five noble houses, Jackson, Karliok, Namteel, Ko, and Ilkandari. All of these houses consist entirely of noble monstrous species. So House Jackson is a house of coatls, the, like, serpents with rainbow-coloured wings. Karliok is silver dragons, Namteel Marids, which are the least good, because they are the, of course, water-based genies. So, sort of capricious, and a bit like, how did we end up here? But I guess we're in charge, so that's cool. House Co. is made up entirely of phoenix phoenixes? And House Ilkandari is completely run by sphinxes. Before we even go any further, I'm apparently a massive fantasy racist, and hadn't read the... Obsidian Portal stuff closely enough, and I just assumed it was all humans and elves and that sort of thing. But that's really interesting. What what led you to that decision to have completely monstrous races as the ruling council? The idea germinated from someone else's one-shot that I played in once, where we were attending a royal ball, and suddenly a gigantic dragon just flew into the middle of it, turned into a person, walked down the steps, and it turned out he was the king. Because why would you not have a gold dragon as king? They're, they're very powerful. They make very good and stable rulers. So, like, I basically just expanded that idea and was like, well, if, like, one dragon king, like, a good dragon, one with morals and stuff rather than an evil overlord, if one of those is a good idea, then surely making a council of a bunch of super powerful monstrous races that all have strong moral compasses... That's got to be the most stable way to run a world government, really. I mean, it does, from what I've heard, seem to be working pretty well for Serendar. I mean, everything's fine. Everything is fine. Definitely no (laughs) undercurrent of awful stuff that we might discover later. No, no, totally not. I mean, the only even vaguely bad stuff is that the council themselves are sort of almost overstepping at this point in that they they now got total control law and order is ubiquitous everywhere but maybe they can do a bit better so it's, it's verging on a bit minority report where they're like picking out the bits of society that might be a bit troublesome and sending them away. A century ago, uh, the Conflux was found, a huge pillar of gigantic magical energy, and it was discovered that that was the only place on Serendar you could use to send people to Bohm, which is the habitable moon. It's been known that the moon is habitable for a long time, but no one's ever worked out a way to get there until the Conflux was discovered, and it was like, oh, 
So this, combined with a bit of magic and some engineering and alchemy, can actually transport three people through the Gulf of Space. I think we should send our criminals there. Yeah, I mean, let's definitely send them to Australia Moon. That seems like a good idea. It is It is essentially Australia Moon. That is, that, that's the central idea of it. I mean, I've got to say, it's not completely unreasonable. In a world where there's a lot of magic and some probably quite powerful future-seeing divination magic, it's it's not like just profiling and saying, oh, these people might be bad. It's quite magically backed up that they probably will be. So, you know, got to support the council's decision there. Uh, I mean, it depends how accurate their oracles are and things, but hey, that's uh, that's not something that you've gotten anywhere near yet. And Serendar is by far the less interesting part of this world at the moment. Which is a good point to travel through space to Bone. What's happening up there? Bone is basically being settled. There is some official settlement, but the majority of the workforce and everything is made up of criminals who are made to serve for a year before they're allowed to be free again. And of course, once they are free, they can't actually leave Bone. There's no conflux counterpart on Bone as of yet that's been discovered. Well, the conflux itself only arose about 100 years ago, so anything can happen, of course. So yeah, even once you're free on Bohm, you're still on Bohm. Uh, you can't you can't take a uh, boat back to Britain from Australia, essentially. As people who do geography will know, Australia is at the bottom of the world. It is downhill, and it's quite a long uphill sail to get You back. can't sail uphill. You can't sail up a waterfall. It's absolutely Indeed. impossible. So yeah, what's going on in Bohm? Because I mean, obviously there's natives there. There's just a lot of interesting things happening. Bohm is made up of a northern continent and a southern continent separated by a single belt sea. At the moment, everything that's happened to you guys has been on the ragged edge, which is one smallish country. Country being used here as a vague term since the like political boundaries don't really apply yet on Bohm. Mm-hmm. Of course. Fairly small part of the northern continent which has on it three other, like, well-established country-type things. Again, not it's not quite as solid as that. The city-state of Hadrasil, which is where some of you are heading at the moment. Mm-hmm. The Tazel provinces, which are basically warring nations. And the kingdom of Degbar, which is just literally a feudal kingdom that's been set up by one house in particular. Uh, it's House Carliox power base on bone even though mm. they're not supposed to really have one but i won't get too far into the intrigue of that because one day maybe you'll manage to get that far one day maybe yeah mm-hmm. uh that's all all on the northern continent and does not stretch past what is basically a ring of swamp up to the far north that conceals something at the top that even the natives don't know what's there because they're not allowed through the gigantic frozen swamp because they have historically been kept out by the giant witchmen. Well, I I just want to interject because cri- this is all as a player in two games set on this world. Giant witchmen is not a phrase I've heard yet, <laughs> and that is making me crap myself. Not gone far enough, nor. And as we will go into briefly next week in the game wrap ups, I recently came across an eighteen foot tall soulless monster and. Giant Witchman still shits me up. Sorry to interrupt. Some Something in the frozen north. Yeah, that, that no one knows what it is. They just know that they're not allowed to go and see it. Reasonable. The southern continent is, like, geographically slightly more, like, broken up and the coastline is much more ragged. Peninsulas stick out a lot further. Not a lot's known about what's down there from your point of view at the moment, but this is the more civilised side. There's just a bunch of princedoms and 
small like free states and things everything is constantly in flux there apart from a large swath of the land called the broken lands which is just a constant state of war instead uh, rather than like geopolitical boundaries moving war just out and out fighting between the locals and at the edges of it the settlers so mm. like every this is pretty much the battleground for every single race that's on the moon at the moment the orcs are there the drow the elves that aren't in other places are down there it's historically important to the indigenous people for reasons that again just haven't been made clear yet so and let's talk a bit about the natives of bone what sort of races were there before Serendar started sending all its dirty criminals up there. Quite a lot of normalish ones, honestly. Like, surprisingly so. Uh, things mm. like wood elves are, were already up there. Uh, some scattered human tribes. A lot of orcs. Uh, there's a drow under empire, because of course there's a drow under empire. Of course. Obviously, Bohm has not had the wonderful ethnic cleansing of Serendar. So, ogres, trolls, creepy crawlies, monsters are just everywhere in every corner from the forests up to the deserts and the plains everything is just crawling with actual monsters because the main difference between Serendar and Bohm besides the actual war that was fought to tame Serendar is that Bohm is a good if you're playing civilization they would be a good four tech levels behind Serendar mm. uh, essentially matters slightly less in a world with ubiquitous magic but still mm. like Socially and economically, they're just not as advanced up here. It's it's less a difference in races and more in social dynamics. Uh, everything's mm. a lot more tribal. Everything's a lot more rule of the strongest, etc. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, I'm going to touch on a point here that we're going to discuss again in a week or so in far more detail, which is what happens when your players do things that upset the balance. Because I want to return to the concept of Dragon King. <laughs> is are there any dragon kings up on bone i mean yes yes there is or rather there was at a time Mirgat the caustic king uh, is one of his many titles king of the ragged edge again the country that all of you are still in at the moment he was always going to be there as like a slumbering beastie in a big castle that maybe you guys would hear about and go poke uh, if it hadn't been for rolling it on the random table, that, like, whatever we worked it out to be, the one in 600 chance that I actually rolled that result uh -huh. on the, the moving the plot forward bit of the random encounter table was that he'd wake up. And he did. And now he is going to be pressing his claim to the entire country and possibly beyond. There is not one but two dragons in the immediate vicinity of the Ragged Edge. You've got Mirgat, who claims to be king of the entire country. But it's quite a small country for an above-ancient worm black dragon to rule. If he really wanted to, he could probably push further. Not over the sea, of course, because it's incredibly turbulent and there is nowhere to land for a thousand miles. Even he couldn't actually fly that far. Uh, but if he wanted to push north over the mountains, he should surely be able to do that. Unfortunately, there's a giant Kraglinorm living at the top of those, specifically tasked with keeping him contained. Interesting. It was like your first dungeon in the... Mm. In, in the, back when there were no goodies and baddies groups, back when it was all one group. You found the temple, uh, not the temple, sorry, the barrow, the final resting place of a group of old-timey adventurers who had gone and tried to kill the Lenorm and failed. But it's a good job they did, because it's there for a reason. This is one of the things about this world that I'm really excited about, is 
not only pushing the plot forward with the things that our players are actually doing, but there's there's such a rich background of things going on that we're just unaware of that I'm really excited to find out about mm-hmm. them. Take the Kraglin Orm, you know, to keep Mirga out. This level of background and hidden things that are going on, to what extent was this planned from the start? And to what extent did you leave gaps to plan stuff in when stuff became relevant? There are so very many gaps. Um, <laughs> the Lenorm was there from the start, and we'll put a picture of the Lenorm in the show notes because I've just realised it's like a Pathfinder-only monster, so it's actually not like super commonly known what they look like. That was there from the start because I needed to think of a reason why Mirgat didn't just rule the world. Like, it's fairly obvious why he can't cross the sea, or Mm. why he can't cross the sea easily in force. But why he doesn't just push north is a weird question that I just basically had to find an answer to. Uh, Mm. And then when I was making the first dungeon, I was like, oh, this would be cool if it was like an old adventurer's hideout and there were some murals on the wall of the things they'd fought. And, oh, maybe they fought the big thing in the north. That makes sense. And maybe that's why they're all dead now. (laughs) For my own selfish reasons, when you say the big thing in the north... Is that the Craglin Orm, or is that the thing beyond the Witchmen? Sorry, yes, that's the Craglin Orm in this case. Uh, the God thing damn. beyond the Witchmen, I do know what it is. It <laughs> will be interesting if you ever get there. But that is a long, long journey north. The goodies are just getting to the point where the world map is about to open up to them. Mm. So once they make it north of the Shiverspine Mountains, which is what separates the Ragged Edge from the rest of the northern continent, although they have a mission that they're supposed to go and do, they could just turn left or right instead of going to Hadrasol and go somewhere else. Mm. So you're coming up to the point where you're going to get a lot more freedom of exactly what you want to do and how you want to do it, especially given the mission you've got is so vague and doesn't really have a deadline or anything. So Yeah, it's true. You're at the point of minimal supervision. So you say the entire idea started from that seed of, you know, ah, Dragon King, that's a good idea. What if there were lots of them? Walk me through your process, you know, of... How you went about creating the world. So I, I, I started with Serendar and made this council of incredibly powerful, basically monsters that would keep the world in order in, in a sort of not just good, but cosmically good way. They are all creatures that are good to their very core, like mostly incorruptible. If anything, like verge on pushing law and goodness too far rather than like actually being malicious or able to be taken advantage of in any way uh they are just super powerful so it didn't really make sense to actually set anything on that world yeah because it would just basically be fine there would be no problem that they couldn't deal with just get to run a lovely shop yeah exactly it would be shopkeep simulator 2017 so i had to come up with an idea of well there has to be somewhere that you can go and have adventures just another random thought occurred to me to be like oh what if what if you could go to the moon that'd be cool so i made a habitable moon it's like why on the moon transporting prisoners seems like a good one that means you get to do some like sort of pushing the western frontier kind of cool stuff there'll be indigenous species there'll be peoples that are like whilst not necessarily evil they might there might be a massive culture clash. Mm. So it's just an easy way to set up a lot of different, like, tensions within the game just built into the world because that's how I prefer to run a game. Like, just have a lot of stuff in the world and see what you guys go and poke with a stick. Yeah, that makes sense. What made you decide to run entirely your own 
setting and build your own world rather than taking a pre-existing one? Taking a pre-existing one's always seemed like a lot of work. Like, strangely, I know, because, like, writing one is obviously super loads of work too. But I find the idea of having to take something like all of the lore of Faerun and learn it to be just a gargantuan task that I am never going to get through. Uh, And if I ever got it wrong, I would feel terrible. And to run this kind of sandbox game where I want you to be able to go and, like, go anywhere and, and go and take the challenges that most interest you... I would have to know it like like the back of my hand because if I'm going to let you guys just wander around, uh, you could be across the other side of the Sword Coast in in one session, and I need to know Icewind Dale as well as I know Neverwinter, for example, and all the places in between. Whereas with my own world, there is a certain amount of I have made Settlement X. Settlement X could be wherever on the map, and I will put it where it needs to be. Yeah, it's a weird irony, isn't it? That it's it's actually easier and less work to make your own world mm, than it yeah. is to learn another one. There's a lot more pitfalls, but it is a lot easier overall, and I think less work, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree, because it's, it's far easier to go, oh, there's a town here. And rather than go and look it up, just go, oh, it's Billsville, you know, Mm -hmm. and make it up. I was going to say that with your own world, you can do exactly what you want, choose the bits that are important to you. But realistically, there's there's a hell of a lot of work that's gone into the pre-existing settings. There's probably, if I want to run something about particularly demons or undead as a theme, there's stuff there that could be used but it's just a lot easier. Imagine you want to run a game that centers around demons. Mm. You have to learn at least the major ones of the infinite layers of the abyss from the Dungeons and Dragons setting. Infinite is a lot of layers, and the important ones number somewhere at about 50 or 60. Like, those are just the notable named ones. I am a huge fan of the 3.5th ed source book that's about the infinite layers of the abyss. I've read it at least twice. And I only know one of the important ones. I'm not sure I could name... and I, I too own this book and I'm not sure I could name any of them. I know that Pazuzu is my favourite demon lord because he has the coolest name. Uh, and that's about it. I've got Demogorgon. Demogorgon is cool. He does have snakes for arms and two heads. Yep. And he is the first of the Tenarii, which is the only other thing I remember from the last time I read it. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, the other thing that's really nice about your own setting is... You can take cool ideas and explore them completely to their fullest, uh, like you did with the the Council of Serendar. And also, rather than there being a world that's there that your players are flung into, you can adapt it and change it based on what your players do, so it feels far more like their world. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who's read a blog post uh, on customization, we went into a dungeon in Taylor's Baddies game, got completely wrecked, came back out to rest. While we were in the, the first time, we smashed up a couple of violet funguses. No biggie. I mean, it melted our orc, but apart from that. And so we came back a couple of days later, and there were violet funguses everywhere, because the spores had germinated in all the corpses, and our life was terrible. And that has been one of my coolest experiences in role-playing, is the way that dungeon changed exactly because of what we did. And with your own world and setting, you can do that on a global scale, which I think is just fantastic. Absolutely, because standard out of the book, Violet Funguses don't do that. They absolutely don't do that at all. That was just something I put in Hmm. to make sure you got punished for leaving and coming back to the dungeon. I used it 
to do something mechanically, but made it fit with the story at the same time, which I can do because in my world, violet funguses now throw spores everywhere if you don't burn them on death. That's just a thing that's canon now. Yeah, because that's the other thing as well. I mean, players always try and get into the spirit of it, but if you're expecting a certain thing because you're familiar with the setting and then the DM decides to go a different way, that can be a little jarring. And Mm. you never get that in something where the DM has created the setting because you've got no expectations of the world in the Mm. same way. Mm -hmm. As long as it remains consistent after that first time, um, anything goes, really. Self-consistency is Mm -hmm. the important thing. And the other important thing with what you did with the violet fungus is just following the rule of fun. Like, that thing that you've made them now do is just super cool. It, It really added to the experience of the dungeon and it's added to the world and is just fun. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing about creating your own world. It's just, it helps everyone's fun. Yeah, it's really fun. I find it really fun to do as Dungeon Master and the one doing the writing, because I just enjoy writing. And uh, it means I can just work so much more with people to get their backstories into the world and have them make up bits and pieces that are, like, super irrelevant little bits. Uh, like, the player who's just joined our game, Jacob, is playing a wood elf, so I've had to think a lot harder about exactly where the wood elves are and what they're doing at the moment, because... You guys have gone nowhere near them. I've got the basic idea of them, but um, it just hasn't had to be fleshed out yet. And now I'm having to do that because of him and like working it in with the ideas he had for his character and making sure everything meshes together. And it's just a super fun time for everyone. Well, thank you so much for the insight, not only into your world, but also into your world building process. I'm sure this is an area we'll return to when Matt's passed his wizard exams and when we resurrect Jack from the Beholder. I'm not willing to spend the diamond, honestly. Well, guess we have to plane shift to hell and find him. Uh, I mean, it's cheaper. It is cheaper. Okay. Well, we decide exactly what we're going to do to retrieve our fallen comrade. Thank you very much for listening to episode five of Total Party Podcast. Remember to check out our website at totalpartypodcast.com. That's podcast with a K. And if you've got any questions, want to send us fan mail, say hi, or just hear about anything particular that you want to see discussed, then email us at show at totalpartypodcast.com. Again, podcast with K. And until next time, keep on rolling. Bye.